Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are listening to As a Woman, episode 119, Exercise and Fertility with Dr. Sasha Hackman. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited for this episode. You are going to love it. And I get asked these questions all the time about exercise, trying to get pregnant, going through fertility, and an early pregnancy. And I am really, really honored to have my friend and colleague, Dr. Sasha Hackman, here to discuss all of the above. She is a board-certified OBGYN, and she is a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist. She completed her residency at Michigan State and her fellowship training at the Medical College of Georgia. She has a research background in the genetics of various reproductive disorders, and she has a personal history of PCOS, which we will talk about. This makes her extremely passionate about lifestyle modification to optimize fertility through exercise and nutrition. And in fact, she has sent me some of her own workout programs, which I just have to say are fabulous. So you're going to love hearing this from somebody who is an expert, who is trained to talk about it and super passionate and practices what she preaches. Here we go. All right, Dr. Hackman, I'm so excited to have you here today. And I'm just so thrilled to have you on the As Woman podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Okay, well, I want to start by just letting the audience who doesn't know you get a little bit familiar with your backstory and why we're talking about this. So you are a fellow reproductive endocrinologist, but let's kind of dive in to how you got into this field and did you always want to be an RE and be a doctor and what was your journey? Uh, Honestly, RE, I was never really on my radar as an OBGYN resident. Funny enough, a lot of people said that I really had the personality type for reproendo and that they really saw me kind of taking that route. And it felt like this almost unachievable dream for me. As we know, it's super competitive to match into our fellowship programs. And so, um, you know, and at that point, I didn't really know that I had any sort of reproductive endocrine issues at all. So I had no real connection to it aside from the fact that I thought it was really interesting and such a cool job. You help people build families. And a lot of my girlfriends were just so amazing. And they're like, if anyone can do it, you can do it. Don't limit yourself. Don't tell yourself no. Just chase after your dreams. We're 100% backing you in this. And so that's when I really got involved in a lot of serious academic research and started networking to try to optimize my chances into matching into this fellowship. Oh my gosh. I love your friends so much already. We all need friends like that who are just cheerleading you and supporting you on. It's a little overwhelming going through the whole application and interview process. 
And I think so many people don't understand how much work goes into one, just getting one of those fellowship spots. And then two, being in fellowship that like half of it is research. Like we really have to be masters of understanding and performing research, even at a basic level. Don't you think? Oh, totally. I mean, we have to complete a thesis. Most of us do it with basic science. And if you're doing more clinical stuff, then you have to be really good at statistics, which God bless those of you who have done the <laughs> clinical research. <laughs> it's a, I did both. I mean, I did basic science and residency to help me match into fellowship and it a thousand percent helped me match into fellowship. But that experience made me not want to do basic science again. And so I knew I was like that. I really wanted to learn more about clinical research and interpreting it, but man, my oral boards were literally a stats quizzing section. It was intense. Imagine, Oh, it gives me the chills and not in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) Likely it was well prepared. That's what fellowship does, but along, along this way. So while you were a fellow, you froze your eggs. And I know there's a lot more to that story than just you went through this process. Do you want to kind of share your own story with endocrinology and your own issues? Yeah. So kind of backtracking into residency, um, when I did rotate through REI, every time I saw a woman who was diagnosed with uh, primary ovarian insufficiency, and for those who don't know what that is, that's basically premature menopause under the age of 40. Um, When I would see these women, I started to get paranoid because I've been on the pill since I was a teenager. So I would get off the pill, not have a period after the first cycle, and then start to freak out that I had no eggs. And so this is where I would see an OBGYN And they just told me all of these problems are related to withdrawal from the pill, uh, which was not accurate. I didn't get a proper evaluation. And so I would just kind of go back on the pill. And when I would try a couple of years later and get off again, um, at that point I was a senior resident. And so I knew better that I just needed to get this evaluated and get my anti-malarian hormone checked, which came back elevated. And so, and the opposite end of the spectrum, right? right? Exactly. And so that's when I started to suspect that, you know, maybe I have PCOS, but you know, I would have known before now. And how is it possible that I just don't know about it? But then I started really thinking, well, every time I get off the pill, my acne comes back cystic, like just terrible. Um, I start start to get a little more hair growth than I want from when I'm off the pill. I don't get periods. And that's when I went and did the ultrasound and saw that my ovaries were polycystic in appearance. And so um, I started doing all the labs to kind of rule out any other possibilities because we know it's a diagnosis of exclusion. And so that's when I kind of at that point realized I actually have PCOS. And um, as a, as a first year fellow, saw one of my uh, attendings who then confirmed everything. Is I love, I mean, I don't love it for you, but I love the part of the story that you're a doctor during this whole time period, right? So we think about for our patients who are not medical, who have a hard time understanding this disease or getting to this diagnosis, and you're a physician going to people, maybe not having the right things ordered, not truly understanding it quite yet. PCOS is really, really confusing to a lot of people. Totally. Yeah, no, it's really complicated. And it often does take a long time to even diagnose it um, because you just for some people, it's really not on their radar and you're thinking it might be something else going on. But at that point, when I finally realized I have PCOS and I was already 32 years old and I knew that 
um, at my now husband, but at the time boyfriend, we were doing long distance for three years and we knew we wouldn't start trying to have kids until I was close to 35. And so I thought, you know, I know equality tends to be an issue with PCOS. I'm not going to take this chance. I can't be that reproductive endocrinologist that when she starts trying, it's like, there's really not much left to work with. That's of good quality. And so uh, we made the decision to electively freeze embryos and do IVF. I love it. So going through the IVF process electively doesn't necessarily make it any easier, but how was that experience for you being on the patient side of this journey? It was a lot harder than I expected. And it's funny how, even though I technically don't know if I have infertility. I know I don't ovulate on my own. So by definition, I guess without any medications, I would be um, subfertile at the very least. But um, it, it was suddenly like I had all these expectations of having to get a certain number of eggs and, oh my God, Eric is drinking too much. The quality of sperm, it's not going to go right. What are you doing? And then we would actually start getting into these little arguments over it. And that's when I quickly realized how infertility can really be super stressful on a couple, on an individual, cause anxiety because you're setting these expectations because all of a sudden you lose all control over what your body is going to do. Oh, it's so true. And it really opens the door for the comparison game. Like just even by human nature, you are looking at everybody else and what are they doing and why are they doing better and what should you be doing different? And it almost makes you feel like you're second guessing everything about your life and yourself and even things you have no control over. It is just one of the hardest experiences. Agreed. And that's what's funny, even though it was elective, because I have PCOS, I had this, like, I always compared myself to all all of our PCOS patients who were at the same time going through IVF being like, well, so-and-so had this many eggs and, you know, out of my 50 follicles, because I hyperstimmed really badly, I only got nine mature eggs. And so then I got sick for nothing. And I felt like, you know, I just, you know, stimulated myself a little too hard for no reason. And you just kind of go down this rabbit hole of self-doubt really, right? Yeah. Yeah. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? but women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day 
because it is easy to take. And I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperature starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan, it's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. It's so terrible. Well, I'm proud. I think that was a great decision and I'm proud that you did it. And I love that, you know, you're an advocate, especially in the light of something we talk about all the time. You know, you're getting older, you're waiting, plus other issues like with PCOS, it's not going to be a walk in the park, most likely. So why not take control of that narrative and at least get yourself part of the way there when you're younger and you have better quality. So you are a walking example of that. So thank you. I want to switch gears and kind of talk about one of your passions, which is exercise and educating people about exercise and nutrition. And, you know, I'm really interested in lifestyle and fertility. So I just love this intersection. Where did this passion come from? Was this just your own personal journey or was this something you'd always been interested in? Kind of talk me through that. Well, I've always been passionate about exercise in general. Growing up, I always played sports. I used to be a competitive swimmer, which is what it was a full-time endeavor um, throughout high school. And then in undergrad, I got recruited to join the water polo team for uh, my college. Hot stuff. I never knew this. I love finding out things. (laughs) Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty intense. And so I was training about four to five hours a day. Um, so it's definitely a lot more than the average person, but it was great. It was, it was an amazing experience. I kind of continued with exercising after college throughout med school, um, and in residency when everyone said, you're going to be way too busy to continue your workout regimen. I still managed to do it all, no matter how tired I was. Um, but then, you know, finding out I had PCOS and knowing that the first line of management is always lifestyle optimization. 
I just kind of wanted to kick it up a notch and really delve into the science behind exercise and nutrition because I knew there was more to it that I could just kind of unlock in order to hopefully try to get some sort of ovulatory pattern without being on the pill um, and to see that if that if that could work for me. I love it. So let's kind of go through what are some of the benefits of exercise and really talk about maybe some of the differences, because I think there's a lot of debate out there between cardio and strength and then like high intensity workout. And why don't you kind of give us the breakdown on benefits and different types of exercise? So I would say all types of exercise are beneficial for a large number of reasons. We know that, um, of course, it helps with your heart health, both cardio and weight training and HIIT. All of these are great for your cardiovascular system. Um, there's this misconception that if you do too, much, too many weights and you're only focused on weightlifting that you don't get that cardiovascular benefit, but there is a lot of cardiovascular activity still going on there that you do get that benefit still. Um, of course, psychologically, your mental health and stress management is highly improved when you maintain regular exercising. Um, and then it is, believe it or not, really helpful for those who are trying to conceive and pregnant. Um, so specifically in the women's health arena uh, surrounding trying to have a baby and during the pregnancy itself, it can help optimize a woman's health so that it minimizes the risk of any sort of morbidity or uh, maternal complication during the pregnancy and the delivery. Um you know, we know, realistically speaking, that weight tends to be an issue these days. I mean, so much good food available all the time. We all like to go out and eat and drink alcohol. And in well, um, the pandemic, don't you? I find that okay. all my patients have gained 10 to 15. Well, most of my patients have gained 10 to 15 pounds just with yes. stress and coping mechanisms sure. and food. And yeah, exactly. Beverage. And or gym closures kind of both synergistically causing that weight gain. Um, And so exercise can help kind of recompose your body without having to really restrict calories, depending on your exact situation. And then specifically for women who are dealing with PCOS, we know that exercise by improving your lean mass, your, which is your muscle mass, it helps to improve insulin sensitivity. Actually, that kind of goes for everyone. And for the listeners who don't know what insulin resistance is, the whole purpose of insulin is after you're eating, your blood glucose levels are elevated. Insulin has to grab that glucose, bring it into the cell to be used as fuel. If insulin isn't working as well, you have higher blood sugar. And so now your pancreas is working harder to make more insulin. Unfortunately, that more insulin leads to higher testosterone levels. It can affect your the regularity of your periods and cause unwanted weight gain. And then that increased testosterone causes a further increase in insulin. And it's this whole vicious cycle that just makes it harder to deal with. So increasing your muscle mass can help with that and help also to decrease the circulating testosterone levels, both for the average person, but especially important for women with PCOS. Oh, absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of misconception that you have to do a big plan or work out like crazy or do all this cardio to reap the benefits of exercise. And you were one of the first people even to tell me, cause I'm kind of a cardio person by nature. Like I want to go run. I want to ride the bike. And you're like, you need to do more strength. Like that's going to get you 
further gains. Like you can do them both, but you shouldn't yeah. neglect the building muscle and strength. And you're a huge proponent of that. Correct. Totally. Yeah. Cause I mean, um, you know, for all the, the cardio bunnies out there who love their cardio, <laughs> don't take away my treadmill. I love it. <laughs> I mean, you could definitely still do it, but the more cardio you do in conjunction with the resistance training, especially in the beginning, the more, the more difficult it is to actually gain muscle mass. And whenever I tell people that they kind of freak out and they're like, well, no, no, no. I want to be toned. I don't want to be bulky or manly looking or look really muscular. And I'm like, well, actually, you know, looking toned actually means looking a little bit muscular. I hate to break it to you. I don't know why. Like you want to see your muscles, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Like that's what toned actually means, (laughs) but it's, um, a lot harder to do than just picking up a dumbbell. And then all of a sudden your biceps, biceps are massive. Like it doesn't work that way. It requires a very, very regimented program as well as very strict nutrition in order to even start looking more of that like bodybuilder type of physique, which I mean, honestly, bodybuilders work insanely, insanely hard to even look like that. So that's what I tell people too, when they're like, I don't want to look like, like a bodybuilder. And I said, that is a professional career. And unless that is what you're going to dedicate your entire time to, we don't have to worry about that. If you're going to work out 30 minutes a day, like that's not correlated. I'm sure you feel that way too. How do you help people get started? So let's say the average person who maybe is listening to this saying, okay, maybe I have a little bit of PCOS, or maybe I gained a little bit of weight during the pandemic. And, you know, Dr. Hackman sitting here talking about all these benefits to exercise, which we'll keep going through. How do you get started? Like, what do you recommend as like first step? Because I think I'll use myself. I'm like a goal programming person, but one of my biggest faults is I'm all or nothing. So if I don't do it one day, then it's like, Matt, that's done now. And so how do you encourage people to do something manageable, like manageable that they can commit to? So I try to see realistically what it is they actually enjoy doing, because if you don't enjoy doing a type of exercise or workout, you're not going to do it. It's going to be always forced and it's going to be a constant battle to try to get yourself to do it. For me, that is cardio. Like I actually used to run marathons, but I hated every minute of training. I hated every minute of the race. The only thing I liked getting was the medal at the end and the (laughs) glass of beer. (laughs) So that was it. Um, And then that's when I started to just kind of accept that I don't like this. Why do I keep making myself do it because I think I'm supposed to. And because my friends do it No, I I'm just going to do what I actually enjoy. Um, and so that's kind of how I started to transition into weightlifting. Um, but for those who are starting off, like see what it is that you like doing. And if you want to get into weights, I really, really recommend getting a trainer in the beginning. I think it's super, super important to learn the form of how things are and to have someone guide you and coach you. I'm not a big fan of like those big weightlifting classes, the class type settings, because there's so many people in there that the instructor doesn't really have the capability to nitpick everybody's form. Like and CrossFit or something that's what you're talking about? CrossFit, like unless you're an experienced CrossFitter, if you're new to it, I'm not really a fan. I feel like you're maybe a little more injury prone if you're not doing things right. And if you're not doing proper form, you're actually not benefiting or helping to grow the muscle. So, um, it's, 
there's less of an adaptation of the muscle from the stimulus. And so I always explain to people like the whole point of resistance training is you need to do something called progressive overload. So first I start explaining this concept because it's a concept not everyone realizes you need where they think, okay, well, I went to the gym, I did my bicep curls, I do my you know tricep dips, I do the same thing every week, or I try to switch it up but then they still go to the same weights and they still do the same number of reps and the same number of sets. But what happens is you're not actually stimulating the muscle to do something new. And so there is no need for adaptation. Progressive overload means that if like today, for example, is my leg day and I'm focused on my quads and my hamstrings. So I'm doing squats and I'm doing leg curls. If I'm squatting at say hundred pounds for 12 reps at three sets next week, I have to do 105 pounds or 110 pounds, or if 100 felt too heavy that I can't go up from there, I increase the number of reps or I increase the number of sets. So now I'm causing a stimulus for my my muscles to be like, oh, okay, time to grow. So now the muscle will hypertrophy. And that hypertrophy is very slight week to week, but you start to notice a huge difference over time. So um, just kind of going from there, I kind of encourage people to do what works for them and what makes them happy, but to somehow incorporate at least going and working out with a trainer once or twice a week so that they're able to kind of get the know-how of resistance training. So what I'm hearing from you is that we need to constantly expose our body to new challenges in order for it to grow and to adapt. Because if we're doing, and I'm so bad about this, I feel like I'm learning so much. Like I like to do squats with the same pound of weights every time they're like, it's grab up, you know, I let, I do some of the Peloton at home programs and they'll yeah. be like, oh, do this, grab your weights for squats. Oh, I know exactly what number of weight, like what poundage I use for squats. So I grab those. And what I'm hearing from you is it should not be that way. You should not be grabbing the same weights every time. You need to be constantly pushing yourself a little bit further. And I mean, isn't this the message for all of life, constantly pushing your boundaries a little bit so that you can grow and change. And that's part of the point is that our body can get used to adapting and we can reap those benefits of exercise. And that that's how you get those muscle gains and all of the physiologic benefits that comes with it. And so, you know, the hormonal and metabolic changes that you see, um, like they do all these studies in women who have PCOS uh, to look at, there have been studies looking at both pregnancy rates and to look at body recomposition um, and then kind of secondary outcomes looking at their metabolic and hormonal changes. Um, where they'll do eight week programs and they'll have, you know, a control group. And then one where they have that progressive overload and just doing that alone without even any dietary changes has been shown to result in higher pregnancy rates for women who have PCOS. And so it's really interesting to see how much more muscle mass can improve your metabolic parameters. I think that insulin is so fascinating. And I, one thing I think modern medicine has done a really bad job of, and I talk about this all the time, is that we isolated medical organ systems into categories so that people could mm-hmm. become experts on them. But yeah. it makes people think that all of our bodies not overlapped when really it's one body. These hormones impact so many different things at once. And so I always tell people, hey, what's good for your body is also good for your ovaries and for your brain and for your ovulation, right? It's not like, oh, 
that exercise, that doesn't impact my fertility or what I eat. That doesn't impact my fertility. Of course it does. You know, this is your one body and what you put in it and how you treat it definitely impacts other factors. So for women trying to get pregnant, so our patients, you know, trying to get pregnant and going through fertility treatments. One, I want to know, what do you recommend as like the minimum amount of exercise you should get per day or per week? Like, what do you tell patients? Hey, this is like your floor of where the bar should be set. So there's the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and you can actually find what their recommendations are on the CDC's website, where they actually recommend a minimum of five 30-minute, at least moderate intensity workouts while you're trying to conceive, but also once you're pregnant. So it doesn't change the recommendation. And we're talking this is a minimum. Um, and that com- there should be a combination of cardio and resistance training. That's kind of a lot. Don't you feel like most people are doing, I mean, we're not talking about the Sasha's of the world, but I feel like most people may not be hitting 30 minutes five times a week. Probably not. I mean, if you think about what that is in total, it's two and a half hours a week. And so I actually tell patients kind of split that up with however it works with your schedule. So if that means three workout sessions where two of them are one hour, and then the third one is a 30 minute workout session, because that works better for you then do that. If like five 30 minute sessions works better, if it's just an hour and a half and then an hour, whatever it may be that works with your schedule, just just do it. Okay. So I love talking about productivity and efficiency and other aspects of life. So we're saying, okay, your goal, if you are listening to this and you're trying to get pregnant or pregnant, there's no difference, is that you need to be trying to get what? 150. I don't know. No, it's more. How much is it? Is it 150? Can I do math? Yeah. Okay. 150 minutes. I'm really bad at math friends. 150 minutes of exercise. And so what is going to be the most effective and efficient way for you? And so it doesn't have to be even over every day. If you're a surgeon and have an OR day, that's unpredictably going to get off and starting very early. Maybe that's not the day you put a really long workout, right? Right. Exactly. And so it doesn't have to be some complicated, I have to do this really long thing, both cardio and resistance or weight training every single day. Is it okay to break it up? What What do you tell people? Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, like say for example, today I have an hour to work out. You can always do like 30 minutes of resistance training. And then the second 30 minutes be your cardio and cardio doesn't mean like, it doesn't have to mean sprinting on a treadmill. If you, if any of you follow Renee Paro, like she runs like crazy on that treadmill. You don't have to be Renee. No, you don't have to be Renee. Cause I, I certainly am not <laughs> like, I like to speed walk on the treadmill and when it's summer outside, cause you know, it's Detroit. I like to go outside for a power walk, um, with the dogs sometimes. And that is something super enjoyable that still counts as cardio. And so just finding ways that work, like you can combine cardio and resistance training within a workout session, which if you're going to do that, by the way, always start with your resistance training and leave cardio second half. You don't want why tell people why. So you don't want to fatigue yourself with the cardio before you do the resistance training. Resistance training requires all the energy you need in order to push yourself in order to kind of do that progressive overload. If you are tired, you may not be able to push yourself the same way. So you're not going to stimulate the muscles to grow quite as much. 
If the cardio follows that intensive 30 minutes, you can kind of take it a little more easy with the cardio and you'll have kind of maximal benefit. Okay. I think that's important because people ask this all the time, what should be first cardio or strength? And so you're saying your muscles are the primary objective here. That's where you're going to reap the benefits is from having that better, that more functioning muscle, right? That lean muscle mass. So work your muscles kind of first in that intense resistance and then cardio can come after it. Exactly. Unless the only time there, the exception to this is if you are splitting up your workouts, and this is more for the really intense people, if you're splitting up your workouts and you're going to have two in a day, it doesn't really matter at that point because you've had enough rest in between. Like if you're going to do cardio in the morning and then resistance training at night, then that's fine. But this is the, like, I have one hour and I want to do that. One hour session all at once, getting it done and over with. I also love that you're talking about Detroit and walk. I'm like, I have a, I have a treadmill because I live in Texas so that I do not have to go walk outside in the summer because it's unbearable. And then in the winter, I'm like, oh, it's December. Let me go for a run outside. So, so funny. Oh yeah. Um, not a problem we have here. That's for sure. <laughs> what about the person who's doing fertility treatments? And this is harder because we do put certain restrictions on people depending on the treatment that you're going through. So how do you counsel people as they're going through fertility, because I think often people stop all type of exercise and I tell them not to, you have to stop certain things, but understanding what you need to stop and what you can and can't do is really important because exercise has so many benefits in addition to everything, health and hormone and metabolic, but also a stress relieving situation as well. And infertility treatments are stressful. Super stressful. A hundred percent. Um, Literally, the only time you will ever hear me say to not exercise is, and I know you're going to agree with me on this uh, during your fertility treatments, is when you're undergoing ovarian stimulation, your ovaries will reach a point where they're very enlarged and uh, they're pretty mobile for most people. And so if you do any sort of intense exercise, it can cause the ovaries to twist on itself and cut its own blood supply, which becomes a surgical emergency. This is known as novarian torsion. That is the only time, aside from that, like when it comes to fertility treatments, just keep exercising. And I always think that it's okay. I tell my patients, even in STEM, so even as their ovaries are getting bigger, you can still exercise, but you've got to be really much more mindful about what you do. So we think of that ovary like a water balloon. I don't want anything that could bounce it inside your body. So you can't do inversions. You can't do jumping. You can't do plyo. You can't be like bouncing on a bike down the road or running. But could you do some strength as long as you're taking it slower? And can you do some low impact cycling as long as you're kind of keeping things low? I tell patients, absolutely. As long as you listen to your body. This would be like a really good opportunity for what I call a deload week. (laughs) (laughs) When I do my workout blocks, I always have them in like four to six week blocks where in the middle weeks, it is the most intense. And then after the peak weeks, I start to kind of go down in the number and the weights. And so, and that's where your body needs to recover. Like when you're, if you're going to do it during STEM, yeah, just like isolate the muscles. So you're not jumping around and keep it, somewhat lighter than usual. Just keep, um, your, keep your body moving, but really the goals are different, yeah. right? Like you don't the need to be focused on, you know, maybe building the most muscle right then. It's right. mostly just to kind of keep your blood flowing and try to feel good. Yeah, exactly. Not lose all the gains that you've already made. Right, right. 
What about embryo transfers? What is your take? And now this is maybe a double-edged sword because there's different protocol types and some of them do require ovarian stimulation. And then there's a lot, we both, you know, nobody recommends bed rest after you do an embryo transfer anymore. But that was a thing that used to happen in our field is that somebody say, don't move around or wait in this bed after the transfer for 30 minutes. And so what do you tell people about exercise after transfer? So given that I just graduated fellowship during fellowship, unfortunately, I couldn't really counsel based on what I really truly believed and would say. Um, Now that I'm going to be starting practicing, what I would say is actually to just keep going with your regular activities. Um, I know it's super controversial for some people. There's limited data, but that being said, the most people, when they get pregnant, I mean, they don't even know by then that they're pregnant. And I'm not talking about a a cycle where you're undergoing a very stimulation or you're doing a fresh transfer, but if you're doing a frozen embryo transfer, you're, you know, whatever your protocol is, if your ovaries aren't totally enlarged, um, and especially if you're taking like estrogen and progesterone and your ovaries are actually suppressed, I would say to keep going with whatever your current exercise routine is. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same. I don't tell patients, I don't want patients to train for a marathon. So I don't want you to be like trying to make up or like lose the weight you gain during your IVF cycle by like going hardcore, not because it's been shown to make any difference, but two, there is like a mind game that has to be played when you put an embryo inside the body that you don't have to play the same in natural conception. But babies implant all the time to people who are working out, living their normal lives, doing regular things. And so we shouldn't have to feel like we have to do nothing or just sit around the house. Although I do tell patients, no dishes, dishes are off the limit. So their partner, if they have one needs to do all the dishes. (laughs) I love that. That That's great. (laughs) I mean, nobody wants to stand there and do the dishes. So, but but I think that that's a, a thing. And, you know, I think really what we have to realize is you said this just didn't really break it down. When IVF first started, we only did fresh transfers. That meant that the ovaries were very large because they'd just undergone stimulation. So you were still under the same restrictions. Once freezing techniques got better and we started doing some frozen transfers and the majority of those, or at least in some of them, the ovaries are suppressed. And that's a very different environment than when your ovaries are really large and could have torsion or be a problem. And as the advent of genetic testing of embryos, and we do even more frozen embryo transfers now, we're seeing patients who are in totally different scenarios than when IVF first started. I will say I'm doing more stimulated frozen embryo transfer cycles. So that's kind of going back the other way. And so I think that listening to us on the podcast is good to understand maybe there shouldn't be as many hard and fast restrictions, but you should ask your doctor because they know your protocol and they know your ovaries and everybody's in a little bit different situation. But if your ovary is enlarged, we don't want it to move around, right? That's the big take-home message. Right, exactly, exactly. What about on the other end of the spectrum, how much exercise is too much exercise? Like when do we think that exercise could be a problem for anybody or is there a situation? Um, There have been a few publications that have looked into this where um, they try to decipher what is kind of the perfect threshold of how much is a good amount of exercise, what is too little, what is too much. We kind of defined what is the minimum requirement of exercise. Um, There's one uh, pretty well-done study in particular where um, they showed that 30 to 60 minutes of vigorous, high-intensity exercise every single day 
actually improved ovulation. And the reason why this matters so much is because if we think about female infertility, anovulation accounts for 40% of cases of female infertility. So that's a huge percentage of our infertility cases for women. Um, Of course, there could be endocrine issues like your thyroid or high prolactin levels. Those are medical situations that need to be treated. But in many cases, we know that it can be related to weight. Um, And so kind of doing that high intensity exercise can both help with fat loss, muscle gain, and improve ovulation and pregnancy rates. Um, But for what they showed was that if you exercise greater than 60 minutes of high intensity workouts, particularly for women who had a lower BMI, uh, specifically under 20, then they were extremely susceptible to no longer ovulating, um, which as I just termed it, anovulation. So, you know, if you're more underweight or if you have a lower BMI, then kind of limiting your exercise. It's a little bit opposite of everybody else because at that point, what happens is you have this hormone called leptin. This is your satiety hormone. And um, if you are fairly thin and you're working out a lot, then your leptin levels are low. And so we know that that can kind of negatively impact the hormonal access, the communication between the brain and the ovaries to help you ovulate. I think it's so fascinating. So when somebody is kind of wanting to start out, what is, and I know this episode is mostly about exercise, but I think a big question a lot of people have is, well, what's more important exercise versus nutrition? I know you're going to say it's both of them. How do you try to counsel somebody who's maybe saying, let's take the average person who maybe is ovulating, but has gained, like, could you lose 10 pounds or so trying to get pregnant and they're trying to optimize things? Like, what is your best take home? You need to start exercising at least 150 minutes a week, both strength and some cardio. Sounds like that's the best option if possible. But what about the nutrition aspect? What do you kind of give a guiding principle for that? I would actually argue that the nutrition is more important as much as I absolutely love my exercise and think it is the best thing ever. Um, Definitely nutrition because, I mean, if you need to lose weight, and I know that there's always this push on social media to not talk about fat loss, not talk about weight loss, um, and that everyone should just like love their bodies as is, which I totally agree. Love your body as is, but we do know that there's enough data to show that if you are overweight or if you are in the obese category, that losing five to 10% of your body weight can significantly improve reproductive outcomes as well as, um, you know, reduce the risk of maternal complications during pregnancy. And so when it comes to the nutritional aspect, you have to be in a calorie deficit in order to lose that weight. Now, you don't necessarily need to reduce quite as much of that calorie deficit if you are working out, so it does make it easier. If we talk about basic math, we know that you know you have to cut out 3,500 calories to lose one pound of fat. And so that means eliminating 500 calories a day. But if I'm working out for an hour and I know that I'm burning anywhere from 300 to 500 calories, then 
I can almost substitute the calorie deficit with the exercise and still eat what I want. Of course, we still encourage high-quality, nutrient-dense foods when you're trying to conceive, but um, the two together is the best. But if you, if you were to choose one, I would say the nutrition, you know, optimizing your nutrition is the most important thing. It's actually interesting, right? Because this caloric deficiency is weirdly controversial in the weir- in the world of diet. People want to tell you, you can go keto and totally ignore your calories, or you can do this, or you can do that, and you can ignore your calories. And I always tell patients, well, anytime, you know, you make a change and you're cutting out some of the, you know, sugar and other things you were intaking, you might see a difference in your weight. But the reality is in order to make long-term changes, which is what you're truly looking for, you need to be having, you know, nutritionally good for you food, you know, whole foods, you know, think about whole grains. You don't need to be replacing with lots of meal replacements and sugar. And if it's a trendy thing, it's probably not the best thing for you. Totally. And uh, my, my, my take on this whole keto thing, when people say, you know, I've been doing keto for two weeks and I lost 10 pounds. I'm like, yeah, well you cut out carbs. And so what has actually happened is that you may not have lost fat you lost water weight because if we think of what carbohydrates are, they're carb, sugar, hydrate, water. So for every gram of carb that we consume, we also absorb two to three grams of water. And so that's that would account for the sudden weight loss. Fat loss isn't quite as fast and requires a very subtle calorie deficit that's more long-term. Um, and so that's why like anytime you have to completely eliminate an entire macronutrient, I always say like, just run away from those diets because they're all, they all serve their purposes. They're all super important. We know for fertility, fat is super important because cholesterol is the precursor to estrogen and progesterone and testosterone and all of our important hormones for reproduction, but carbs are also really important for mood and for energy. And, you know, the nice thing about building muscle is your muscle actually stores the carbs. And so the more muscle you have, the more carbs you get to eat. And I love that. (laughs) I think Um, it's all about balance and just understanding, you know, these different aspects of food. And I know you and I are both really big proponents of eating real actual foods, eating fruits and vegetables, eating whole grains, you know, not eating a lot of processed things and added sugar, not eating tons of meat all the time that you can get healthier fats from other sources. And so I think that, you know, there's a lot of us trying to speak in that zone. That's not judgmental. And I tell my patients, I'm like, okay, well, studies show us that the fertility diet includes these things that we just mentioned. And that even by looking at your day and replacing one meal with vegetable-based protein over Mm animal-based, you're going to statistically see an improvement in ovulation. And, you know, by decreasing red meat, we saw improvements in IV lab at the IVF lab and embryo quality. So it's important to know that that data does exist. It's just not everybody's talking about it. Right. No, I agree. Okay. Well, I could have you on here all day. We could like do a whole separate episode on nutrition because I know, I know how we both love that topic as well. But I just want to know if you kind of have any like lasting thoughts for people when it comes to this exercise, if there's misconceptions or anything you want to clear up for anybody. I would say when it comes to tackling exercise, if you are inexperienced and you're super intimidated by it, 
Don't let the intimidation get in the way. Um, you know, we all have to start somewhere. Uh, people who, if you follow me on Instagram and you see my exercises and the weights I do, I did not start there. It took many, many, many years. And I started off with a trainer to learn the techniques. I've then done a lot of research and YouTubing and all these things to really refine what I know and improve my form. And so just remember when you see other people who look super fit and know what they're doing in the gym, um, that they started there too. And they didn't know how to do it from day one. So don't let intimidation be the factor that stops you from doing it. Um, and whatever it is that makes you enjoy exercise, just get out and do it because some exercise, even if it is once a week is better than none at all. I love that. So it doesn't have to be, if 150 minutes is totally unattainable. Okay. Start somewhere, right? Just start by moving your body in some way, some little step that's going to make a difference. And even if it's 10 minutes a day, that's 10 more minutes. And that does build up over time and can make a difference. I would love it if you would tell people where they can find you on social, how they can become a patient of yours in the future. And then also you do have some exercise content out there for maybe somebody who wants to just like get started, explain what that is for people. Um, so you can find me on Instagram at Sasha Hackman, MD, that's S-A-S-H-A-H-A-K-M-A-N-M-D. Um, and then my website is, uh, sashahackman.com. And I actually have some blogs with some information regarding exercise and fertility, some more information specifically on PCOS, as well as some nutritional information on there, I do have some uh, workout programs. These are downloadable PDFs um, that have a 12-week program. And I'm currently in the process of offering some one-on-one coaching uh, for one month at a time where you can actually get more personalized uh, specifics on what your macronutrient requirements would be based on your age, weight, and your goals and uh, specific meal plans accordingly. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. And I can't wait to see you again soon and then have you back on the podcast later. Okay, friends. I hope you love that as much as I did. And Sasha is just an amazing person. And I hope you follow her, especially if this is a topic that you are interested in. As always, appreciate your support for the podcast so much. You can follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD or check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. Thanks, friends. Hey guys, welcome to The Collective. I'm Brianne Halfrich, a 26-year-old bioethics PhD student and clothing brand CEO. Welcome to my podcast where we talk all things health and wellness, navigating your 20s, and becoming the best version of yourself. So sit down, play that episode, and join The Collective.